This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Father, help me by the power of your Holy Spirit to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would free us from the moral insanity of human pride. I pray that you would reveal to us that there is no freer, no more expansive, no more joyful reality than in being in full, glad submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. So only you can do this. And so I call upon you now in Christ's name. Amen. The fall of man resulted from a single instance of moral insanity. God created God-imaged, God-dependent man and woman, thinking that they could exist better within the world that God created whilst rejecting God's authority. In the garden, God set out a clear boundary, and the man and woman thought it wise to reject this authority. If you eat of the fruit of that tree... You will surely die, the serpent said. Did God really say? And he really had, and they rejected. Again, I say, this is not just rebellion, which it is, but human pride, believing we wiser than God, is moral insanity, patently so. How might you ask? Is this insanity? Well, consider this. The the average human, I Googled this, the average human in the world is about five and a half feet tall. So it's probably about here or so on me. (laughs) And the sun, something we can see in our very visible universe is 485 billion feet away. So if you stack every human in the world, you're not even a 10th of the way there. We are very, very small in just the observable world. By sheer size, human pride is pretty silly. And then on top of that, we are very, 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 very fragile. (laughs) The only temperature we can survive within is a razor's edge of precision. And not only that, but we are incredibly contingent beings. We are constantly dependent on multiple things that we have no control over to just keep us alive. If God decides that the lungs are going to stop functioning, that's just it. If we don't have air, as I've said for a few minutes, we're done. And not only that, but we need constant food, constant water. And yet, how often I can, how often we can default to acting like we actually are the functional God of our world, especially as Americans, individualism and self-expression are our chief virtues which means the chief vice of our age, of the zeitgeist of our age, is anybody saying you can't be exactly who you say you want to believe. Any restriction upon us is shouted down because we have, as Americans, an innate allergy to any authority. No one can tell us what we can or can't do, and we are free to define or redefine all of God's laws as we see fit. It's insanity. It's like an ant trying to impress Everest by flexing and and curling a pebble. 
It's ridiculous. Now, initially, this feels so bold and so freeing and breaking off the confines of a higher authority feels so good. But here's the sad tragedy of the actual reality of that. When an image bearer of God tries to break free from God's authority over them, their world does not become bigger and more expansive. It becomes suffocatingly small. What initially feels liberating ends up being suffocating. Because if I am God, then my world is kind of a sad, small reality. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors in one of my favorite books, Orthodoxy, top three on my all-time list, helped me see this in a way that nobody else has yet, other than Scripture, of course. He helped me see not only the sinfulness of trying to be my own God, but the silliness of it. He says this, So you are the creator and redeemer of the world. Oh, but what a small world it must be. What a little heaven you must inhabit with angels no bigger than butterflies. How sad it must be to be God and an inadequate God. Is there really no life fuller and no love more marvelous than yours? And is it really in your small and painful pity that all flesh must put its faith? How much happier you would be. How much more of you there would be. If the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos, scattering the stars like spangles and leave you in the open free to look not just down, but also up. Well, today we continue on in our study of Luke and we will see on full display the insanity of human pride. Five and a half foot man's silly belief that he can He can keep his own power and security. He can secure salvation in direct defiance to the eternal purposes of God through Jesus Christ. This is what we're going to see. This is what we have been seeing. This is what we will continue to see. So some quick context. Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem on the week of Passover, and and this is the destination of a journey that he set his face towards back in Luke 9.51. Luke writes, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that is to return to his father, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is because he had a job to do before he went back to his father. He had a salvation to secure. And when he first entered Jerusalem back in 19, he did so to cheers and songs and was hailed as king by the common folk at least. And they, and they were right, but not in the sense that they expected. And then the religious elite, the, the super Christians of their day, were angry to see this scene. And they told Jesus to rebuke the crowd and to set the record straight. And Jesus did set the record straight, but not in a way they expected. He said that if these stop praising him, even the rocks will cry out in praise because Jesus Christ will be worshipped. And then Jesus weeps over the heart hardness of greater Jerusalem. And then he storms the temple that has been desecrated by peddlers trying to make a quick buck by ripping off Jewish pilgrims. He shuts down this blasphemous bazaar and begins teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel not of an earthly kingdom, but of an eternal kingdom. And that he was making a way for the lowest sinner 
to enter into. That was good news. And then last week, these super important Jewish leaders, they gather together to challenge Jesus' authority while he's teaching. Tell us, who gave you this authority? And Jesus doesn't answer them directly. He answered them by telling a parable, a story that exposed their brutal hypocrisy and predicted their demise. We'll pick up in Luke's flow of thought in 20 verses 17 through 18. Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I can't help but wonder if Chesterton had Luke 20 swimming in his mind when he spoke of a, a hammer of a higher God that must smash our small cosmos. Imagine this moment. So, so place yourself there. They are staring the Son of God in the eyes. He is warning them of the folly of living in the world God created and rejecting God's salvation. Okay? Are you with me? He says it is folly, it is silly, it is deadly, eternally. Son of God staring into their eyes and saying this to them. And yet, they reject him. Now, this is an important moment, and here's why it's an important moment. You don't leave a moment like this unchanged. When Jesus looks directly in your eyes, you cannot remain neutral from that point on. One of two things will happen. You will either humble your heart or you will harden your heart. Those are the only two options when Jesus looks directly at you. You can't remain neutral after that. You will bend down on your knee in sweet repentance. At the axis, we know that repentance is a glorious word. We can turn back to God. Praise God. Or you will double down on your pride in deadly defiance. And so this is the tension we are caught up in here in Luke. And this is that moment for the Jewish authorities. How will they respond? Will they recognize the rebellious absurdity of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Messiah of God? Will they let their pride be crushed so that their soul might be saved? That's the question every human has to ask. Verse 19, how will they respond after he looks directly at them? The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. At that very hour, they were furious. For they, they were quite perceptive. They perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. No, they don't bend down in humility. They double down and are hardened, believing that they are the truest seat of authority. And again, we see just how strong the intoxicant of human pride is. Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, who has proved that he is the Messiah in magnificent fashion, is warning them that they will be crushed if they reject him. 
And their impulse is to think they can stop God's purposes by manhandling the Messiah. The one who made a hurricane cease with a cough. That's what they wanted to do, lay hands. But notice why they didn't. So this is twofold insanity. Thinking you can stop the Messiah. And why don't you? Because they feared the people. Again, I say human pride is moral insanity. Fearing small, frail, contingent beings over the sovereign king of creation. Sin is insanity. Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not fear man. Why? Well, for the most obvious reason in the world. For the judgment is God's. Fearing man over fearing God. How do we do that in downtown Nashville, Tennessee in 2020? Of course, we do it by blatant and overt sin. That's pretty conspicuous. But what is the greatest danger that we have in fearing man over fearing God in downtown Nashville in 2020? I believe a more subtle and a more dangerous way we do this is by not submitting fully to the entire word of God. Are you ever embarrassed by the word of God? Depending on who's around. Do you ever try and explain away parts of it that culture finds abhorrent? Despite the very clear teaching from God. Friends, we must be warned here this is a great danger in the church. We are not free from it, and it's offensive to God. And know that this slow erosion will lead you full on into the full current of worldliness. This is what the enemy does. Does God really say? And this is happening 10,000 times a day. Did God really say? You have to decide for yourself today, will you stand on the word of God as your ultimate authority or will you try to have one toe in and then still hope that Babylon thinks you're really cool? We have to decide. Of course, the Bible isn't progressive. It's eternal. It's the eternal word of God. So at the Axis Church, let's just settle it. We are God-fearing people, not man-fearing people. In that bracket. So they fear the people, so they don't try and arrest Jesus on the spot. And, and just to be clear, this wasn't a close call for Jesus. It's like, okay, whew, good. Whew, it's a good thing they fear the people or Jesus was in real trouble. Remember Luke 4? He's standing in the synagogue, reads the prophet Isaiah, says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And they tried to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> so this is par for the course, and Jesus is totally in control, totally sovereign in this moment. John 10, I believe it is 18, no one takes my life from me, but I will lay it down on my own accord. So this wasn't a close call. Jesus is in total control. God's eternal purposes are being worked out. But remember, their pride and satanic influences have made them delusional. Right? They think they can stop the Messiah, fear man over God. So what are they going to do? Verse 20, I encourage you just to read along with me as we go through this. So they watched him. And they sent spies 
who pretended to be sincere. That they might catch or, or Matthew says, entangle Jesus in something that he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Because they are scared of what the people might do to them, they come up with a scheme to get him in trouble with the governor, namely Pilate. Now, typically, Pilate would be located in Caesarea, that is the seat of of his power, but during the Passover week, because of the influx of people, Pilate would come to Jerusalem just to make sure that these Jews didn't get out of hand and that he could smash any rebellion in real time. So this is a shrewd plan. Pilate is on the lookout for this type of thing. Will somebody deny the lordship of Caesar? And though Luke doesn't tell us specifically who these spies are, Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 22 does. It tells us that it's the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians who are sent. And what's interesting is the Pharisees and the Herodians were religious and political adversaries. So they they aren't a likely team here. But they had one thing in common. They had earthly power. So Jesus was a threat to what each of them held most dear. So as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. So we can agree on this. That if Jesus claims to have authority, he has to be shut because that comes against both of us and what we both hold most dear. Jesus is the enemy of anyone who believes they have autonomous authority. We see this in this unlikely team. And they pretended to be sincere. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. They were insincere men. They were self-consciously hypocrites. And remember, these were the religious elite, but they were resorting to satanic tactics to try and trap the Son of God. And notice how shrewd and subtle very religious people can be when Jesus' authority threatens a heart idol. Theirs was power and pride. Where in your world is Jesus' authority unwelcomed? Where in your world is Jesus' authority unwelcomed? We're very religious people. The most dangerous way we can read the scripture is to assume we're not the Pharisees. It's something to be shrewdly avoided that Jesus has stared directly at. Where has Jesus revealed a hard idol, looked you in the eyes about it, And instead of laying it at his feet in the freedom of repentance, you've conspired to silence his voice. Well, I've thought about this week for me personally. I I haven't let this be hypothetical. Where is Jesus' authority over me, subtly railed against by me? And I would have to say the, the idol of comfort is the most obvious way that I see this play out, that I try to silence his voice. Now, for me, this doesn't manifest in eating too much ice cream or, or binge-watching Netflix. That's not my manifestation of it. Rather, for me, it's my sinful inclination to not want to take full responsibility for what God has called me responsible over. And of course, this is most clearly seen in home life, right? You see certain things at work in the culture of the home. You know they're not God-honoring. You know that they need to be addressed, 
And as a man, I just get in there and I, I address it and I am a noble example for Christ, right? No, I sulk. And I give the silent treatments, wishing that somebody would do something to honor the Lord for crying out loud here. It's uncomfortable to lead. Jesus has called me to it. And so I can stand up here and seem like such a godly preacher and then rail against his authority over me to say, you are responsible for your home, Mr. Potiger. So that's my confession. Where's yours? Where is it for you? We can be honest. We have the gospel. We must never forget that these are very religious people. They have the best church attendance, and they despise the authority of Jesus when it confronts their idols. And they are self-consciously hypocritical. They know they're scheming. This is not godly. This is how deluded they are. This is what sin does. Moving on. So the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians put their differences to the side for a moment, and they conspired together on their best entrapment question for Jesus. And they go and find Jesus probably still teaching and preaching with a crowd around him, right? So all eyes are on Jesus, and they approach. The crowd knows that there's drama here. So this is the, this is the setting, verses 21 and 22. So these insincere spies, they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. So we see the, the shameless flattery that is not fooling anyone. 22, what is the entrapment question that was their best shot? Here it is. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? There it is. There's the impossible question that will get him. There's the bait with two jagged hooks on it. How so? Well, first, he is surrounded by a Jewish crowd that has lived under the heavy hand of Roman oppression. So there is an entire world of hurt and pain underneath the phrase, pay tribute to Caesar for them. So this is not an innocuous question. That hits right at a central nerve ending. For the Jewish people. Do we pay tri tribute to Caesar as Jews? In AD 6, AD 6, there was a documented riot in Judea because of these Roman taxes, this tribute penny. So if he says it's lawful, if it is mandated, the crowd will turn on him. Remember why they sang his praises during the triumphal entry? It was because he was the king, and the king is supposed to overthrow Caesar, not confirm him. So this is the tension. That's the first part. Okay, if I say that, that's what happens. However, the second hook, if he says that they don't need to, he'd be charged with insurrection. That's the reason Pilate is in town to see if any Jew will try to undermine the authority. And so if Jesus, in the temple, all eyes on him, say, you don't pay tribute to Caesar anymore, you think Pilate would have noticed that? In fact, and this is fascinating, this is the exact charge they brought against him when he was before Pilate. Luke 23, 1 and 2a. They brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. 
So this is where we are. This is shot through with slime and deception and the stench of Satan here. Yet the question is hanging in the air. The crowd waits with bated breath and every eye is fixed on Jesus. Some faces filled with hopeful expectation that he will prove that he is on the side of the earthly oppressed and bring immediate revolution. Others with thinly veiled contempt, hearts darkened with hostility towards Christ, hoping the bear trap will now spring. How will he respond? Will he be Israel's Messiah or Israel's betrayer? Those are the options before him. Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness. Matthew again fills this out more for us in his parallel passage. He says, Jesus didn't just perceive the craftiness, but he said, you hypocrites, why do you put me to the test? So he sees right through the false flattery. He pulls back the curtain for the crowd in case there was some imperceptive person in the crowd who didn't understand what was going on. And all the cards are on the table. And here's how Jesus Christ answers them. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, verse 24, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's, probably through a snide smile, Caesar's. I actually have a picture of an actual denarius from this time or a, a tribute penny from this time period. Now, obviously, we, we know whose likeness. It's, it's obviously Caesar's, and even the text says that. But we even have it in the text. Jesus says whose inscription is on it. Do we happen to have that, that denarius by chance? No, I'm sorry, my bad. We don't, but if you Google first century Palestine denarius, it'll come right up for you. So that'll be a treat later. So Jesus asked not just whose image, but whose inscription is on it. Now they would have known because they were right there, but we don't have one in front of us. We can. It says this, the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine, Augustus. That's interesting. Caesar, son of God, is on the inscription. Do you see the strange tension and oppressions that the Jews were living under? Let this locate you in the dust of first century Palestine. This is who's ruling over the Jews. Caesar claiming to be the son of God. Let this allow you to feel the longing that faithful Jews had for the true Messiah and the true Son of God to come and liberate them. Their, their desire was very real, very existential, very visceral. And this is a powerful moment, a moment juxtaposing two claims at ultimate authority, Caesar, son of the divine, and Jesus, son of God. Now, I just want to note one thing here that is so obvious it could easily be missed. And it's this, just consider the astonishing restraint and patience and grace of God in this moment. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is being disrespected and dishonored by religious hypocrites, and he's holding a coin from the current political authority claiming to be the son of God. It's amazing that the solar system doesn't just catch fire in this moment. So if you've ever wondered God's patience, think about this. It is truly astonishing 
This is the real Jesus. He is slow to anger and abounding in unbelievably steadfast love and patience. Whose likeness and inscription, he asks. Caesar's, they say. Verses 25 and 26. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. What is marvelous about this statement? That's the question, right? How did, how did he defuse the impossible bomb here? Well, to see, we must take a careful, closer look. Jesus gives two directives here that caused this response. So how did that happen? The first directive is smaller, yet still very significant. And the second is huge and massive and eternal and indeed marvelous. First, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So Jesus does not undermine the temporal political authority of Caesar. Why? Simple. Because Jesus did not come to establish an immediate earthly kingdom, therefore Caesar was not his competition because Caesar was not their biggest problem. So he says, frankly, if the money has Caesar's image on it, then give it to him. But it didn't cause revolts. Why? We'll get to that in a second. But first, we need to notice something. Here, Jesus is teaching an important Christian ethic. It's not the main point of this part, but it is a point. Christians are to be good, upstanding, honest citizens that pay their taxes and honor their political leaders. Catch this. Even when we disagree with them profoundly and the leaders themselves are not honorable. That's, Jesus said it, not me. <laughs> Truly. Jesus expounds it more in Romans 13 through Paul. So we'll work through that, so that helps. Why? Why would God, how does that work, a just God telling us to do that? Why do we render to Caesar? Romans 13, 1, verses 5 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why, Paul? That's hard. Here's why. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, so he draws a connection between judgment when we despise authority because of what it says about our hearts, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Principle? Christians honor those in authority as an act of obedient faith in God's total sovereignty. God is never hand-wringing during an election. 
God is never handwriting during tweeting. Indeed, God casts the deciding ballot on every election. He is always purposeful. And no matter how frustrating things are in America or how bad things might seem, it is nothing compared to what the Jews were enduring who had to read that letter. In fact, Peter talks about this too in 2 Peter. He says, honor the emperor. Do you know who the emperor was when he said that? Nero. Do you know what Nero did for fun? Crucify Christians and set them on fire. And he teaches a heart that will not honor somebody who's in authority, even if they are terrible, is a heart that is not in submission to God, ultimately. Because Caesar wasn't in power because of his daddy. Caesar was in power because God sovereignly ordained it for his eternal purposes. And I've heard both people or people from both sides of the aisle say, if so-and-so gets elected, I'm leaving the country. Have you ever heard this? Have you ever said it? I definitely haven't. Definitely haven't said it. Um, mature, mature Christians, we don't speak this way because our hope is not in any election. Yes, we are good citizens and we participate in the political life of our city. We pay taxes, we vote, we fight for God-honoring legislation, we oppose evil legislation. We even peacefully and lawfully protest sometimes. But we, like Jesus, don't place our hope in government, but in God. Our, our hope is not in a greater Nashville, and it's not in a greater America. Our hope is in the new Jerusalem that will, we will inhabit for all of eternity. Do we engage politics in such a way that unbelievers would think that must be where their hope is? Remember Senator Ben Sass, a Christian senator who I really appreciate. You've heard me talk about him before, talking about how disheartening it was for him when he actually got into politics and kind of was on the inside and saw how much Christians seemed to place their hope in politics. And he's like, I know these people. Please tell me you have a higher hope than us. And we do. And this brings us to the second half of Jesus' brilliant reply. How did he defuse the bomb? Well, he, he said the wrong thing on the one side, it would appear, but this is what he did. He did it by taking the question out of the immediate and casting it into the context of eternity. Why didn't the crowd turn on him when he didn't condemn Caesar? It's because he lifted their eyes from Caesar to God. It was a matter of significance and perspective. Let's say you're at Starbucks and they mess up on your order and you're all upset about it. And then you look outside and somebody's stealing your car. You don't really care about the coffee order anymore in that moment. This is the power of significance and perspective. Perspective is a powerful thing. Yes, the denarius bore the image of Caesar, so render it to Caesar. But render to God what is his. And what does God, who bears God's image, the text would ask? Every single human that has ever existed bears the image of God Almighty. Caesar's authority and even his tyranny became tiny and trivial and insignificant when compared to the eternal gravity of God's claim upon them. He took it from the temporal and cast it into eternity. Yes, Jesus came to bring salvation to them, but it was such a larger salvation than they had could possibly comprehend. It wasn't just freedom from Caesar for crying out. 
It was reconciliation back to God. Caesar wasn't their biggest issue. Separation from God was their biggest issue. And rescuing them from Rome is not why Jesus came, but rescuing them from the wrath of God is why Jesus came. And being freed from paying a tribute to Caesar wasn't their biggest need. But being redeemed back into the life of the triune God was their deepest longing of the soul. So if you bear God's image, and you do, give yourself to God, Jesus says. And this is the greatest question then. How do we render ourselves to God then? How do we give ourselves to God? So this is us right now. That's the question we have to answer because the truth is we all owe a debt that we can't pay. We have a tribute to pay, not to Caesar, but to God. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death, implying eternally. Have you ever sinned? I have a lot. And so I have a huge debt to pay and I can't afford it. Even the Jews that were listening knew that they couldn't come to God personally. They needed a priest to offer sacrifices for their sins, and then only the high priest once a year could render himself to God in that sense. But Jesus came to change that and to pay our eternal tribute for us, to pay the price that we could never pay. Jesus Christ came to reconcile you back, not to Caesar or to overthrow Caesar, but to your father for eternity. And I love how the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 10. He's writing, he's writing to Jews. He's writing to Hebrews who understand that they can't approach God. They can't render themselves to God personally. This is why he writes this. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So we have a real problem. There is nothing sufficient to take away our sins eternally. But when Christ had offered for all time a single decisive sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Oh, liberation was coming, but in such a bigger way than they could have understood. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being saved. You are an eternal being. You need eternal covering. That's what only Christ can do, and that's what he did. We're talking about Caesar. What about God? He, that this is the gospel that he was preaching he was reorienting their understanding from the temporal to the eternal. Caesar's not that big of a deal. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a tribute, by becoming a curse for us. Jesus Christ came to give us something so much bigger than a political win. He came to give us eternal life, eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God, in the new Jerusalem that is coming in a very short time. And how do we render ourselves to God then? How do we access this? What must I do to be doing the works of God? 
they asked in John? Believe in his only son. And this is why the gospel sometimes feels too good to be true. There is nothing you can do. Nothing in my hands can I bring, but only to the cross of Christ can I cling. The cross of Christ, Christ himself, is your tribute, and you did nothing to earn it. Oh, don't let the glory of grace inoculate you from it. It turns out that the best news in the world actually is the true news. Render yourself to God. Believe upon the Son, be regenerated and born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then once this happens, you become united with God through Christ, and whatever Christ purchases becomes his in full. Jesus does not become a compartment to your life. He does not become Lord over Sunday. Your entire life now becomes God's in every sphere of your life your work and your finances and your sexuality and your talents and your treasures and your singleness and your marriage is lived under the glad submission to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, your good shepherd. Romans 12.1 speaks this way. Romans is the densest theological book in the New Testament. Chapters 1 through 11 expound the glory and the depth of the gospel in startling fashion. And then verse 12, it gets practical. And this is what the hinge says. I appeal to you, therefore, in light of the riches of the gospel, brothers, by the mercies of God, it is grace that you can even do this. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God because of Christ. And this is now, this physical submission is spiritual worship to God. We are holistic beings. For some, this might sound initially like a high cost. And in a sense, it is, but only in a small, superficial, temporal sense. Because here's the secret. Living under the lordship of Christ is the path to a deeper, fuller, happier, eternal existence, more so than you could have ever dreamed, because it turns out God really is more for your joy than you are yourself. And there is nothing you'll sacrifice now that you won't be eternally grateful that you did. There is no secret vice you indulge in now that won't soon be exposed for the the silly parody of joy that it is. When Christ frees you from its grip, and gives you his joy when you simply acknowledge the most obvious reality in the world, namely that you aren't God, and you render yourself to God by surrendering yourself to Christ. Far from your world getting small and stuffy, it becomes massive. It becomes expansive. It becomes eternal. You are forgiven. You are freed from your shame. You are reconciled to your father. You have an eternal inheritance that's coming. And when Christ comes the second time to baptize the earth with fire, you won't be consumed, but you'll be refined and remade and resurrected. The stuff of eternity. And those silly vices will be silly in comparison. It will turn out that you made no sacrifice at all you'll realize that you sacrificed the shackles of slavery to embrace 
the inheritance of royalty. And that's true. And anyone who's ever been hung over knows it's true. Oh, Christ is so much more for us than we are for ourselves. Lord, help us believe it. But if you resist the authority of Christ over you now, if you dig in your heels like the spies did, and you try to live like your own God, and I will make my own decisions, and I will be my own authority, you will soon realize the insanity for what it is. For every tongue will ultimately confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question will be, will that confession come through shouts of joy as you run into the kingdom of light? Or will the confession come through angry sobs as you're cast into outer darkness? Because nothing unclean can inhabit the eternal kingdom. We need the covering of Christ. Earlier, I talked about the patience of God. The fact that we are still alive and we still have breath in our lungs and we have the word of God and we are hearing it proclaimed. We are experiencing the kindness and the patience of God. For this call from the lips of the Lord Jesus are just as directly aimed at us as it was at the crowds and the Pharisees. Render to God the things that are God's. So for those of us who aren't Christians yet, this means trusting in Christ for the first time. Trusting in Christ's perfect obedience, perfect life, perfect fulfillment of the law rendered to you by faith. And then trusting in his atoning sacrifice on the cross where he took care of all of your sin and all of your shame. Where the, the judge of all things became your father with a delightful face towards you. And then trusting in his victorious resurrection three days later where he defeated Satan, sin, and death and made way for us to inhabit eternity, inhabit the kingdom. This is what Jesus called the gospel. And I commend it to you now. For those who are Christians, this means opening yourself to the spotlight of the spirits. Where are you resisting the authority of Jesus in your life? What heart idol is Jesus looking directly at and saying, it's time to smash that at my feet? With kindness in his eyes, love in his eyes, you are so much more loved by your God than you can imagine. He wants to take that from you. He, he came that you might have life and have it to the full. The problem is my palate needs reorienting because I, I like cotton candy. Where are you resisting Christian maturity? Maybe it's through resisting fellowship, through unwise relationship, through an unhealthy relationship with technology. Where is Christ calling you to something higher? Let us all together heed the words of Roman 2.4 this morning. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And again, at the Axis Church, we know that repentance is a sweet, sweet word. We can, by God's mercy, turn from a trash heap to a feast. We can turn from death to life. We can turn from moral insanity to a glorious clarity. We can turn from slavery and take on royalty. The great poet George Herbert um, 
before he gave his full life to Christ and his calling to pastor a little church of no more than 100 before he died at the age of 39 from tuberculosis. Um, he knew a glamorous world. He was the orator of Cambridge. He spoke before kings. And then Christ, in his kindness, allowed him to become disillusioned to the pomp and circumstance and the hollow vanity of his world. And he talks about this surrender that took place in his heart. And he tells us, as readers of his poetry, what this looked like. He said, the reader shall find in my poetry a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom. This is the invitation, and we all know it's true when we've woken up from the spell of sin. Jesus offers you perfect freedom. Render yourself to God today by surrendering yourself to Christ today and find perfect freedom for eternity. Well, now we're going to transition to a time of reflection and confession and then communion. Jesus warned us that when the seed is scattered, that the enemy wants to take it away. And so we create a little time of incubation so that the seed can start to sink in. Where is the Holy Spirit ministering to you? Or perhaps a way you can use this time is to ask yourself this question. What does surrendering to God mean for me this morning? What is Jesus staring directly at and saying it's time to let that go? And then after this time, we will come, if you're a Christian, to the communion table where we see the tribute that Christ paid for our eternal salvation. We find it in the elements, which are a picture of what he has accomplished. The bread represents his body broken for you. And the juice or the wine, depending on age or conscience, represents his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, your salvation is already accomplished. Jesus did it in full. But scripture tells us to not come quickly, not in an unworthy manner, but to search our hearts. And so I encourage you, listen to the work of the Spirit right now. There'll be people in the back who would love to pray with you if you want to pray. If you want help receiving Christ this morning to understand more of what that means, I'll be sitting in the front row. I'd love to talk to you. So after this time of reflection, you, you may come and partake of the Lord's table. Father in heaven, thank you that the best news in the world is true. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.